Hello, and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. I'm John Sherburn, and I'm the show's producer. The Blue Earth Podcast is focused on our ocean. It's brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop future leaders to protect the ocean. Our president and host is Richard Hyman. Today's episode features John St. Augustine. He's one of America's top talk radio hosts, an accomplished author, public speaker, and an environmentalist. John shares stories from his book, Living an Uncommon Life, and discusses a few of the more than 100 vignettes that he and Bill Curtis produced regarding a variety of environmental earth matters, including water pollution, ocean acidification, and plastic. Five of these vignettes are featured throughout the conversation. The Blue Earth Podcast can be found everywhere you listen to your shows. For more information, check out futurefrogman.org and at futurefrogman on social media. Enjoy the show and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. So John St. Augustine, my friend, it's so great to see you again. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I get a chance to do a lot of interviews for a lot of different things, but this is what I've really been waiting for because so much of what you do and so much of what I do kind of connect and, uh, you know, I'm all in, so let's go. Okay. And although we are both passionate about the environment and we do want to talk about that, we're going to, we're going to talk about you up first because uh, you've uh, been having an incredible life. Uh, as, first of all, as far as an introduction today, our guest is John St. Augustine. And uh, bear with me as I tell you about John. Uh, just, don't make a, just don't turn it into a eulogy because most of the time... <laughs> These intros of mine are so long. It's like, and then he did. Okay. Go yeah. Ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think we got you. Uh, it's uh, John's a radio host. He's an author. He's a public speaker. And he's an environmental conversationalist. If I read that correctly, which really caught my eye, I did a double take because, yeah. you know, you think of environmental conservationist, but uh, uh, conversationalist, which is wonderful. Uh, it's a great term, and it's what we need to be having conversations in order to build awareness and understanding. So, John, uh, I gather that although you spent a lot of time in the Upper Peninsula, the UP, for those that don't uh, aren't familiar with that, and uh, in uh, Michigan, correct, John? That's correct. Yep. And uh, Chicago is your home, and I gather you're... Uh, Avid Chicago Cubs fan. I am. I was going to wear the hat, but the season's kind of iffy, so I laid off that. But I got a Bears hat on. Right, right. And I've seen you uh, on uh, your Facebook page uh, many a time in uh, a, a f- full Chicago Cubs gear. That's right. Uh, uniform. But uh, a, a little bit more about John. Uh, very accomplished. Uh, uh, here's a quote. With thousands of hours in front of and behind the microphone, Along with two decades of television appearances and platform speaking, John is highly regarded for his professionalism, visionary content, and project leadership. Uh, Another quote, John has earned a reputation as one of the premier talk radio hosts in America for his intense delivery and interviewing skills. John, I read that since the inception of your radio talk show in 1997, you have broadcasted over 7,500 programs and interviewed over 5,000 people. Yeah, when that was written, that was about seven years ago. So now we're over 14,000 probably, but not about the same amount of guests. They wow. kind of wrote, yeah, it's no wonder I need a nap, huh? <laughs> well, that's wonderful and uh, and uh, a little intimidating for me to uh, uh, to, to host you, but uh, really uh, wonderful. Now, John, I know I felt your intensity and your positive 
energy when you first interviewed me on the radio, on live radio, two times actually, several years ago. And uh, by the way, for the audience, you can hear those uh, interviews on uh, frogmanbook.com. They're, they're posted there. And uh, John, you recently hosted me on your Life 2.0 podcast, which was a lot of fun. And uh, that is available on Podbean, as well as Apple, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. We'll talk more about 2.0 in a few minutes. John, you're also a very accomplished public speaker. I mentioned an author of several books and a passionate environmentalist. We were introduced by a mutual friend, Tom Martin, and we discovered that we had another mutual friend, the famous singer, songwriter, and environmentalist, the great John Denver, whom we both admired greatly and we both miss very much. John, uh, an amazing life, not a eulogy. It's a it's an amazing life and a career that you are having. So, uh, yeah, when, there's a difference. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, great things to come, I'm sure. Uh, but John, if we if we started a little bit chronologically, I'd like to talk about you and and, and your life thus far. And coincidentally, uh, you, you talk about life. You titled your I believe your first book, Living an Uncommon Life. Um, that's, uh, should we start there? And, sure. uh, and we're going to, uh, even though you have an amazing chapter in there called Your Voice Matters, uh, and that's about your meeting with John Denver, um, we're going to save that till later in the conversation. It's but, your uh, show. Yeah, but t- t- tell us about uh, Living an Uncommon Life, how that came about and, and what, the, what the book is about. Oh, boy. So, as you mentioned, my first radio show way back in 1997, 23 years ago. And matter of fact, uh, without making this too of a too much of a timed uh, po- podcast with you, today is National Radio Day. And so I was able to look back on those 23 years and all the stops I've had, and the things I've done. And, you know, I started in a little studio in, in uh, Upper Michigan. I had an hour a week for five weeks to get it right. No experience, no nothing. And I had just come off a, a very difficult year uh, where we moved from Chicago, lived in a motel uh, with my family, and uh, I had lost everything. And I took a very long walk from the Upper Peninsula of Chicago, Upper Peninsula to Chicago and back about a thousand miles round trip. And it was obviously not something that I would suggest anybody else try, but this was something that I felt I needed to do. I walked to Chicago with two other guys, Dwayne Kennard and Joe Johnson, we had some amazing experiences and then walked back and on the way back, this thought about radio came to me that this was my calling for some odd reason. I had no experience, no journalism background. Radio to me was listening to ball games, that was it. And so uh, August 27th, 1997, I had this first show. And by the time I had gotten to when I wrote the first book, Uncommon Life, you know, eight, nine years had passed and I realized that I had been so fortunate to be in conversation and connection and friendship and uh, camaraderie with so many incredible people that helped me find the best within myself. When I grew up in Chicago, listen, my best grades in school were lunch and gym. That's it. So I am so far removed, you know, as they always say, least likely to. Uh, there's a lot of things I was good at, but what I'm doing now and have done for the past 20 plus years was never on my radar. So the book was really a compilation of people at the time, and some of them are still with us, that had such influence on me that they were living certain principles that if I applied to my life, I might not get the exact same uh, results they had, 
but they were going to be better than the results I already had if I didn't uh, apply them. So uh, people like uh, Dorothy Hamill, my friend Dorothy Hamill, Cheryl Richardson, Wayne Dyer, uh, the late great Walter Payton, my friend Jerry Kramer from the Green Bay Packers, and all these people had a piece of my puzzle. And I didn't realize it right away until one day, you know, you stand back and you turn the, the telescope around and you go, wow, look at all that's happened. And that was a long time ago when that book came out, 2006. And that's really was the compilation of that. And, and the last chapter of that book uh, might have been the most profound for me. It was about two young people that were uh, killed in an auto accident in the UP of Michigan, Chelsea Hewitt and Tim Watchko. And they lived their very short lives in such a way that, I mean, I know people going to therapy trying to figure stuff out, and these two young kids had it. Uh, Chelsea said, uh, you know, do unto others, basically, that you'd have done unto you. And Tim said, you know, go at it 100% because you don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. They were 16 and 17. So that first book was a compilation, really, of the building blocks uh, that helped propel me forward to the career and, in some degree, the life that I have now. Yeah, that's... Uh... I'm, I'm sure there were some struggles along the way, but uh, certainly oh, there was like four or five. Yeah, I'd say. yeah, no, but I, I find it, uh, it it's magical uh, when you have a uh, a blessing like that uh, that you you, uh, you find your way, you find your direction, you find your calling. Um, so, uh, but what what possessed you to take that walk? So this gets into the more metaphysical part of my life, and I think it really is part of everybody's life. We just don't pay much attention to it. Uh, uh, the walk itself was a recurring dream I would have right before I woke up in a very stressful time in my life. Uh, we were still living in Chicago. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I had, you know, I had served my country. I had a college degree. I had thought I did everything right, and still my life was falling apart to some degree. And but it, I've learned that. Sometimes things need to be falling apart to fall back together again, different or better. And that's exactly what happened. So the walk was literally something that was shown to me before it happened. This part of my brain, look, here in Chicago, we don't even put ketchup on our hot dogs, right? So you're asking a guy like me to believe that I, something I've been dreaming may eventually show up. And that's what happened. I dreamt it for months. We moved to Michigan, moved into this little motel with these Native American friends of mine who are still close to me to this day. And then I had the dream again. And in the dream, Richard, it was me, side of the road, backpack on, sun setting on my left. I could still see it if I closed my eyes, big beard, and a stick in my hand. And I had no idea what it meant. Had the dream again months later. And uh, Bruce Hardwick, who was the guy that owned the motel, he's a Ojibwa elder. His uh, traditional name is Mukdefe. Uh, he, I told him what was going on. And he took me out behind the motel to this big lodge they have on their property. Matter of fact, on my last book, Phenomenon, the lodge is on the back cover. It meant that much to me. And uh, he says, well, you're having a vision. You know, like, you, like we have those every day. <laughs> no. He says, but you're being given an important choice. You're being shown what could be out there for you. Or you could just sit here in the motel and wait and see what happens. So I took door number one, and I decided I needed to take this walk. Got all the way to Chicago many, many miles, obviously, uh, four or 500 miles. You can't walk in a straight line on the highway. They arrest you for that. And so it was quite an adventure. We get to Chicago, everybody else goes home, and I start walking north alone. And outside of the little town of Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, I found myself standing on the side of the road with a backpack on, the sun setting on my left, a stick in my hand with a big beard and a backpack going, you've got to be kidding me. And my belief system started to rearrange itself. How was it possible I could have seen this before I was standing in it? 
And when I had the realization that they were connected, I heard a voice inside my head, literally clear as a bell, say, John, go on the radio. What was that? Again, no experience, no nothing. And, and then it, it was gone as quick as it came. And I was looking for the rest of the instructions and there weren't any. And that afternoon, uh, every three or four days, people knew my route. I had somebody check on me. And that particular afternoon was a friend of mine named Molly, who is a park ranger at the Horicon Wildlife Refuge. And she, it was her turn to check on me. So she found me a few miles down the road. And I got in her car and I said, Molly, Molly, I'm going to go on the radio and I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. And matter of fact, in her car at the time, this battered old Toyota she had, a guy named Barry Farber, who just passed away a couple of months ago, was on the air from New York talking about something. And I said, I'm going to do what this guy's doing. Now, Molly knows me and she's like, you know, I think you're a little delirious from the walk. You need some wild turkey and a hot shower. You'll feel better tomorrow. Well, I did the wild turkey. I took the hot shower and I still thought I was supposed to go on the radio. And, and that's what happened. And so it didn't happen overnight, obviously. I got back. I finished that very long walk. It was cathartic and, and difficult. Uh, at the same time, it, it rearranged all my molecules on a lot of levels. The things I thought were important changed and all that kind of stuff. And um, in the spring of 1997, I, I was in the motel calling radio stations out of a phone book trying to convince somebody that this guy had something to offer that wasn't just sports and politics. I had program directors say, there's nothing else besides sports and politics. No one's going to listen to you. No, they were wrong. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> that that uh, Some of the things you said there remind me of a recent conversation I had with a new friend uh, with a, on a for, another forthcoming episode of our podcast, Blue Earth, uh, her name is Suta Calling Last, and she's a Native American uh, mem member of the Blood and Blackfeet tribes. And uh, I'll have to introduce you to. Yeah. Uh, she she had uh, uh, a meaningful vision, uh, and um, I'm sure several more, but she spoke about a vision that she had as well, uh, which is very, uh, uh, very, very cool. So, uh, okay, John, so that, that's amazing, and that got you into radio, and uh, uh, tell us about your career in radio. You, you were in that a number of years, and then you, you took a break uh, yeah. and, and got into television. Well, you know, that, that uh, out of 27 radio stations I called in the phone book all over the Midwest, from this motel in Upper Michigan... To this day, I think of that kid, that guy, I was 37 at the time. I'm 60, never mind how old I am now. But uh, I was uh, 37 years old. I, I felt like I had some marching orders given to me and I needed to do something. I woke up in the spring of eight, at 97, started calling these phone numbers in the phone book and asking for program directors or general managers. And I started to tell them what I wanted to do. And they thought I was nuts and they were probably right. And I uh, went through all of them. And again, no one's going to listen to you. Nobody cares about that stuff. And I thought to myself, listen, I'm living in a motel room. I got nothing going for me here. How I vote and what my favorite sport teams is, not going to get me out of here. There's more to life than that. And uh, the last one was Alice Sabuco at WDBC Radio in Escanaba, nowhere in Michigan. And she said, tell me about this show idea. And she heard about me from the newspaper. They read, there was a stories about me walking. Oh, you're that crazy guy that walked to Chicago. And uh, that was the icebreaker. And I met with uh, the owner, 
shortly after that, guy from Washington, D.C. flew in. I told him what I wanted to do. He looked at me and he said, son, nobody just walks into radio and starts a radio career. At your age, you have no background. What do you want? I said, well, first of all, I'm from Chicago. So we talked very plain. And I said, I want a year's contract. And he said, son, you're not going to make five shows. I said, number two, I'm not your son, so don't call me that. Number three, in a year, you're going to wish you gave me that contract. So I had five shows to start. The first four were horrible. As you can imagine, I didn't know what I was doing. I had to walk, we had no hardly any equipment in there. I had to look for CBS News at the top of the hour. And back then, we had what was called cart machines, like eight tracks for commercials. And I'd know nothing. So, but the last show, the fourth show, I mean, the phone wasn't ringing. I always kid say, you know, four people were listening, three related to me. That was it. And the fourth show was done. And I knew something had to happen for that fifth show. And Stedman Graham, who's Oprah's longtime uh, significant other, was a friend of mine, still is. And we played golf together. And I, and I called him. I said, I need a name guest here. And I called him and I said, you know, Stedman, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I want you to do. My shows are on Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. Would you do it? He says, you're doing what? No, what? I said, just say yes. So he got on. What I didn't know, Richard, was on Monday, he was on the cover of People magazine. Tuesday, he had a brand new book came out. Wednesday at 9 o'clock, he was on with me. And I looked like I knew what I was doing. And we got five more shows, five more shows. At the end of the year, I was on for two hours a week. And that became, uh, then people started noticing and listening. I moved over to ABC and replaced somebody named Dr. Laura. You remember her? Sure, yeah. Dr. Laura used to beat people up left and right on the radio, and people loved that kind of stuff. And so here I come talking about a very different way to live your life. Uh, I never could figure out why somebody would ruin their life for 20 years and expect in two minutes someone they don't know is going to fix it on the radio. So anyway, I got a lot of hate mail because I was not beating people up. And then, but then, then, then that caught on. And a miraculous thing happened. Uh, Charter Communications back then was a, a fledgling company, but they put a camera in my studio to watch me. And then they put me on television in like 80 markets. And I thought, who in the world? It's going to sit and watch a guy do radio on television. And now everybody does that. At the time, there were three people on the radio that were on TV. Myself, Don Imus, and Howard Stern. I don't know what happened to those other guys. <laughs> but, uh, but so that really kind of launched things. And then from there, I went uh, into national syndication. And I actually took a break in 2002 on the, the eve of a big contract to go nationally syndicated. Um, I had another assignment. I, uh, I donated a kidney to my daughter, Amanda, and it was literally driving to the hospital when I got the call that the deal is signed and I said, I gotta wait a little while. So I had to put that off for about four months and by the time I was able to come back and get ready to go, uh, I didn't have any gas left. So I took a year off and uh, eventually worked my way back, started writing the book. And uh, when I came back uh, within a year or so, Howard Stern had been getting a huge contract for, uh, for his moving to satellite radio. And I designed the Oprah channel in the UP of Michigan, drove down, presented it. I knew her a little bit. And then in 2006, I found myself letting go of radio as a host and helping build the Oprah radio network for satellite. Then I became a producer for Dr. Oz, Gene Chatsky, Bob Green, a bunch of people. And then eventually I had my own show on there and, and some short form stuff. And then that parlayed into more TV stuff as the book came out. And so here I am sitting back going, how does this happen to a guy whose best grades were eating lunch, right? And it's never really stopped. I've had some breaks here and there. That's natural in any career. 
Uh, I did the Oprah thing for four years to 2010, was off for a couple years, and then I ended up at WGN back in Chicago, uh, one of my most coveted stops. That's where you and I first met. Uh, I was on the, uh, the air there in Chicago where I grew up in a really cool studio right on Michigan Avenue, and man, that to me was like, the Oprah thing was great, but WGN here in this city was the highlight for me. And my folks were already gone by then, unfortunately, but they would have loved listening. And then from there, it was CBS Overnight America and a bunch of other things and eventually podcasting. And so while the platforms have changed for me over the decades, the messages have not. Yeah, interesting. Maybe you could make a comment, John. Uh, you said you, you got some breaks along the way. Um, uh, and and uh, breaks do come along, but my philosophy is that you have to make your breaks. You know, we, can, you have a you have a view on that. Yeah, you got to keep showing up. You know, if, if, I think too many. You know, years ago there was this book out called The Secret. Like, if you would just sit around and believe stuff enough, magical things happen. And I think that what you focus on expands. That I'm certain of. But you still have to do the work. The lights don't turn themselves on. You got to flip the switch. You have to keep showing up. And the more I said yes to something, even if I didn't know what the hell I was doing, <laughs> these things would come along and I would be able to figure it out. And I, I grew by saying yes. It's okay to say no. Not everything worked out perfect. I thought there were some things that, that should have lasted longer. There were places I stayed that, that I thought were um, launching pads, but they turned out to be landing pads and there's a difference. Uh, but you have to keep showing up and, and seeing what's there for you and being uh, flexible enough to not think it should be the way you think it is. So when I got to Oprah Radio, I had lunch with a guy who was great. He ended up running the station and he said, well, you know, I, we all know who you are, but I can't put you on the radio. I said, what? You're going to be kidding me. This was like the pinnacle for me at the time. He said, what I need you to do is be a coach. I need you to teach Dr. Oz. And I don't know what happened to him either. Uh, Gene Chatsky from the from uh, Today's Show and some other people, I need you to teach them and coach them what you know and what you've learned. We don't have anybody like you. And I, So for a couple of years, I had to stow my stuff and do that. And I had a natural aptitude to do it and a lot of technical pieces in that. And eventually I had a show on the channel, which was fine. But it's it's all of that. You, you If I would have said no to that, a lot of this stuff doesn't happen. So you're right. You make your own luck. But I always looked at luck as the, the acronym of laboring under correct knowledge. If you don't have the right knowledge, you know, libraries are great, but if they're locked, they don't do you any good. And we live in a world full of information and disinformation. And you have to be able to have discernment, figure out what's what and how it applies to your life. Yeah, well said. Uh, I really like that. And uh, yeah, I, I with Future Frogmen, we were born out of mentoring and I, I do a lot of mentoring with uh, the young people we work with, we work with, uh, and we we welcome people of all ages, and we're a very inclusive organization, of course. But uh, I'm reminded of when I when I speak to audiences, uh, when I get the opportunities to uh, share my stories about adventures with Jacques Cousteau. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I speak to people of all ages there, but particularly with with the young people, uh, I I do say just say yes, you know, because. Uh, that's what I did. I, I kind of laugh. Uh, I think I told you this story, John, but when, when Captain Cousteau asked me at dinner, uh, I had only met him that day, if I would help drive a truck from Los Angeles to Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, I tell the young people, I didn't have a smartphone I could take a peek at under the table, like where the heck is Saskatchewan? I just said yes. 
And and uh, I do tell them, you know, you have to use common sense. The, the world feels a little more dangerous today. I, I, I don't know if it is, but uh, use common sense. But but if, if you don't say yes, you may never have that opportunity again. You know, I, I would just real quick on this radio thing. Um, I am uh, on the precipice, which is just a great word, not used enough, precipice of an international radio project. And the and the only reason I'm, I'm uh, doing this show that will launch in the fall of this year, hopefully, is that the guy who has who called me to do this heard me on the radio in 2009 on the Oprah channel going in his in his wife's car to get the oil changed. He heard my show, remembered my name, called me four years later. We've stayed in touch since. And because of those little connected dots that I kept saying yes to, my career continues because of that. Yeah, that's, that's an, another great message because something that happens today, something great might happen tomorrow, but it might happen years from now based right. upon that dot that happened today. You just never know. Well, look at you. You know, we talked in 2014 or 15 somewhere. That's quite a while ago. And, and you know, when Tom Martin sent me the book and your connection, of course, I grew up watching the Undersea World of Cousteau every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock here in Chicago on ABC TV. And I... I I, along with millions of people, thought, God, wouldn't it be the best thing in the world to be on the Calypso? And then I find out I could talk to someone who was. And look at us now. You're doing this podcast. You've created Future Frogmen. And I've told you this before. I feel, man, if Captain Cousteau could see this skinny little kid who drove that truck to Saskatchewan now, he'd be just ear-to-ear grinning. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. Hey, but uh, let's talk about you, John. Um, no, no, let's talk about you. <laughs> the, uh, so, so then you, uh, this was all before Life 2, 2.0 oh, yeah. and, and Earth Matters. How yeah. about uh, we go into that chapter? Sure. How did that happen? How did that come about? Life 2.0 was the concept to me that how I've really done my utmost to live that. I don't always get it right. Who does? But Life 2.0 is like the next level of awareness and consciousness with the finite time we are here. I've done two TED Talks in my life, and the first one was a, a, a knee shaker, meaning I was in front of 5,000 NASA scientists in 2009 at Langley, and I had seven minutes to make them think I was smart. And that's not easy to do with those guys, but the radio part came into play because seven minutes to be in radio, you can cover a lot of ground. And the talk I gave was about how I was at 10 years old in July of uh, 1969 and witnessing the moon landing and how that shifted something for me and, and how probably shifted something for them, the people in the audience, and that one shift in our life can lead to more and lead us in a direction, much like we're talking. So the Life 2.0 project came out of the awareness that if your uh, consciousness changes over time, then you can take in information you normally wouldn't have before and your life experience can get better, which was the, the second TED talk I gave in Ontario in 2018. Uh, the concept was called human math. Uh, my best grades, as I said before, were not in math, but and my dad was a banker and he always used to tell me there was a language to math and money and things like that. And he was right. And I figured out a long time ago that the average life expectancy in the United States is about 77 and a half, 78 years which is just like 28,348 days to be alive. That's not very long. And some people get a lot less and some people get more, but that's the average. And when you start realizing that how many days you've already had and you subtract that from the average, that's either really depressing 
or really motivating. And so I choose to do my utmost to have it motivate me. I have about, if it stays on average, about 6,400 days left. I don't major in minor things anymore. I don't argue over politics, but there's no answer. I'm not worried about what a certain team's colors are or you know the headlines, basically. So I created Life 2.0 based on those two things, about upping our awareness and consciousness about the life that we have and what we can do while we're here, full well knowing that I might not be here tomorrow. And that's where the podcast started. Uh, it was an iteration out of the CBS podcast I had from uh, 2014 and 15, and I created Life 2.0 out of that. And to this day, I've done, you know, there's 10,000 downloads, and I have conversations with people like you who are doing great things in the world to remind us that, you know, it's not what happens to you in life that matters. It's what you do about it that counts and how you apply and pay for the rent, you know, for the space you've been given on the planet. Or you can just sit around and complain how things are. It's a choice. Yeah, I've I watched both of your uh, presentations, your TED Talks, and uh, I'd, I'd highly recommend them. They're both outstanding. And... Uh, uh, I like the 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 math analogy, it, it, and yeah. looking at it uh, as a motivator is is a, a valid. Uh, well, you know, real quick, I, I'd have to pull up my my computer here to get the net because I have so many numbers in my head all the time. But our friend John Denver only lived to be age of fifty three. It's not like thirteen thousand days. I mean, that's not long. But what he did in that time was formidable. Captain Cousteau, I believe, lived much longer, and he shoved three lifetimes in his time frame. So. These are the things. I have a picture on my desk here of Theodore Roosevelt, our 26th president, who was an accidental president because McKinley was assassinated, which is one of the projects I worked on years ago called History Matters. And I look every morning I walk in or I have coffee with President Roosevelt, and he reminds me to get my you-know-what going because I'm running out of time. Yeah, yeah that's a great analogy, too, with uh, Cousteau. Uh, he did so much with so little. And, yes. And, 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 and John, you know what? What? What an incredible talent! And we're yeah. we're getting close to closer to uh, talking specifically about John and your meeting with him. So uh, let's dig into Earth Matters and yeah. uh, tell us about that. And uh, let's have a an environmental discussion. Fantastic! And this is really the heart of it for me. All that other stuff about me, what I've done, I really don't care about that. But I do care about the Earth Matters project. When I was at Harpo in 2009, so 11 years ago or so, uh, I was doing these short form pieces for the channel. And we'd had Money Matters with Gene Chatsky and Health Matters with Dr. Oz. And I wanted to do an environmental thing. And uh, I couldn't find anybody. You know, at the time I was doing my own show, but I was also kind of staying out of the, I'm building stuff for other people. And Bill Curtis, who is the renowned journalist on A&E, and he's been an you know, anchorman and incredible guy, one of the top voices and presence in the world really as a journalist and broadcaster. This guy's got a whole room in his office just for Emmy awards. I'm not kidding. Um, he was coming in to do, I think I had him set up with Dr. Oz to talk about at that time, his uh, tall grass beef project. He had sustainable beef in his uh, farm and ranch in Kansas. And so with all of that, uh, he was walking in, in my mind from the time he left his office at Curtis Productions, which is about an eight minute drive, to Harpo at the time, I thought, who's better voice to put on Earth Matters than Hello, I'm Bill Curtis. So I wrote three or four very short form uh, scripts. And I gave it, to, I, I pulled them into my office. I said, come here and read these for me. And he read them. And then he went and did the show. And that was it. I left Harpo six, eight months, year later, whatever it was, and totally forgot about Earth Matters. 
probably two years after that, 2012, 13, somewhere in there, my former production guy, John Keith, calls me in Michigan and says, hey, brother, what do you want me to do with these Earth Matters things? I'm like, what are you talking about? He had kept them and put production on them. So if you take Bill's voice and you put really good production on them, that's something. And I listened to these and I thought, wow. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Who knew when he was walking in, I wrote these scripts and gave it to him that they'd still be around three years later. I'm glad John kept them. And so I listened to these and I thought, man, we got something here. I got a hold of Bill, sent it to him. He thought they were fantastic. But at the time he had gone back on television in the in news here in Chicago. So we had to wait a year for his contract to be up to start these. And so we came together. I go to Curtis Productions. Uh, we taped these things, state-of-the-art facility, and every week I would dig in and write on things that most people don't hear about at all, much less in the headlines, about environmental challenges that we have. And those are only a minute long. It would take two to three hours research for a minute. I had to get the numbers right. I had to get the tenor right, the tone, and, and, and presented it in a way and write it in a way that was for, for Bill's voice so people could connect with it. And when we, by the time we, we did those and had a syndicated run, it was 300 episodes. And they are evergreen in our business, meaning that I could run most of those over and over again because the presence and the problems are still around. They don't go away. We have to still address these things. And so the Earth Matters Project has really blossomed. They're heard all over the world now in a couple different places. Uh, there is um, uh, the geospatial online magazine runs them and there's a column and I never would have guessed writing three or four little scripts in my office at Harpo that all these years later, they'd still be going. Now, is there a way for people to hear those today? Well, there's a couple of ways, you know, there's a Facebook page for earth matters and those audios, I've become a film producer too, Richard, cause I got nothing else to do. Uh, those audios were put to video and you know, they're still only a minute long and, you know, people's attention span, for better or for worse, is a minute. It's, that's about it. And so we were, became pretty adept at putting a lot of information in a very short amount of time and then creating images around those that make them even more powerful. And so they can go to the Earth Matters Facebook page and all the videos are there. We still post a lot of things there, Bill and I. And there's a couple other places on the internet, but those are all audio. But if you go to Earth Matters on Facebook, uh, we're there. Okay. So let's talk about a few of those. Yeah. At Future Frogmen, we message that our mission is to protect the ocean in brief. And uh, we do that to kind of keep it simple. And uh, like you were saying, the attention span of a minute, you know, we try to make that. That's not our true mission statement. But we talk. The point is we talk about the ocean. But in reality, we care about all water on the planet, all aquatic resources, as well as creatures that are associated with those. So... Right. Um, Let's start by talking about a couple of your vignettes about uh, freshwater. Yeah. Uh, there, there was one on rivers and streams, if we could talk about that. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we'll go from there into okay. uh, the Flint water troubles. Yeah. So the, the rivers and streams was one of the earlier ones that I uh, produced and, and Bill voiced. And it came out of a report that I happened to stumble across that like 50 to 80%, somewhere depending on where you're at in the country, of the, of the rivers in, in our country were unable to support aquatic life, mostly because of runoff from agriculture. And there is a dumping issue, but this runoff from agriculture was basically rendering many of the streams and the rivers uh, sterile. 
And, you know, that's kind of not how they were designed. So that particular one, I think we're going to be hearing some of these, that particular one was so riveting to me because when I grew up as a kid here in Chicago, and I got some good news report actually in the Chicago River, you know, the river here was a sewer. You know, you'd constantly see, you know, the latest politician maybe floating down there or some tires or whatever. And it wasn't unusual um, to, to, you know, to see this dredging going on. And when the rains would come here in Chicago, they'd open everything up and everything from the sewers would go right into the river and then out of the lake. And that was a consciousness problem. Over time, that has changed. So that while it's true that we still have these problems with the river, just recently I read and was thrilled to hear that there are 19 species of fish thriving in the Chicago River. Now, would I eat them? I don't know about that. But they are thriving, and that's major progress. So the one about the river really caught my, my ear, uh, mostly because, as you pointed out, everything's connected. You know, uh, the aquifers of this planet are, the, are like the kidneys of the Earth. And they filter everything down. So what goes up comes down. And I think of all the concepts that I've worked on with Earth Matters, the big one that gets me is there is no new water on this planet. The same water that the dinosaurs waded around in uh, is the same water we have to live on. And I don't know if most people get that, understand that, or realize that. And when you do, you wait. You mean there's no new water? No new water. Goes up, comes down. Goes up, come down. And there's a huge responsibility, I think, and a consciousness that has to take place around that one fact. If you realize that, it's a biosphere. You're getting me on a roll here, Richard, so hang on. This is a biosphere. I learned this in fifth grade. What's contained in the biosphere stays in the biosphere. End of story. Captain Cousteau talked about that. You know that. People that are involved in Future Frogmen understand that. It's like a snow globe. And everything inside that is what affects us. So... We are stewards of the globe, and I don't think we do that very often. Future Frogman does a great job with it. Earth Matters helps people realize that, but that's the one sustaining thing. No water, no life, period. Yeah, and what goes up comes down, and in, in this episode that we'll hear in a moment, uh, Bill also talks about what goes around comes around. That's right. Which uh, is, is true, and uh, at least often, and it's... Uh, uh, a little uh, could be a little frightening for those that are eliminating the protections that have been put in place over previous decades to yes. protect to protect people and uh, now putting innocent lives at risk. From the surface, they look clean enough. The rivers that run through the cities and towns of America, but a recent study by the EPA shows that high levels of phosphorus and nitrogen are putting the 1.2 million miles of streams and rivers surveyed under stress. The past 44 years have brought stricter regulations on what corporations can dump into our waterways, but the latest EPA study shows that 55% of the streams and rivers surveyed are not suitable for aquatic life, mostly due to fertilizer runoff, rendering these arteries of Earth sterile. You can do your part by using organic fertilizers on your lawn and in the garden. Because the old adage that what goes around comes around isn't just a cliche. It's a way of life or death, especially when it comes to our water supply. I'm Bill Curtis with Earth Matters. The thing that, that's as, as challenging for me to hear as what you just said about the protections being lifted and things like that for, for business and corporations and industry is, is, is we could have done a whole show just on bottled water. I mean, 
when I grew up, bottled water was a empty Coke bottle you put in the faucet and you drank it. End of story, no bottled water. But somewhere along the line, these companies convinced us that you need more water and it needs to be bought by them or from them. And then the, no one gave any thought to where the plastic goes. Well, let's throw it in the water. So it all ends up in the ocean. So, you know, what goes around comes around, what goes up comes down, We're, we will pay the price. There's an old saying by Chief Seattle that says, contaminate your bed, one night you suffocate in your own waste. Hmm. And we're going to uh, get to plastic uh, in a little more depth in a few minutes. Uh, but while we're talking about freshwater, I believe you also uh, have an episode on the Flint water. If there was one, listen, I remember, and I'm sure you remember, when the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire in 1969. Remember this? The yes. Cuyahoga River had so much garbage and oil and, and fluids in it that it actually caught on fire. It was burning. So if you're uh, not as old as we are, go look it up. It is uh, sad is what it is. But it was also a pivot point in this country to go, wait a minute, the rivers are catching on fire because they're a dump from all this toxic stuff. Maybe we should do something about that, which was part of the spark. As much as I'm not a fan of Richard Nixon, he did follow the lead to get this EPA going because it was good policy and voting uh, because there was this insistence that we need an Earth Day. We need some sort of movement. So EPA was created. And the Cuyahoga River incident was a, uh, a match point, no pun intended, to help the EPA actually move forward because it didn't exist at that point. Flint was, should have been the same thing some sort of major wake-up call. The worst place to be in a spill is downstream. And so when you realize where this spill took place and how what goes around comes around, that everything's connected, that the people of Flint have had to deal with something that should have never happened, number one, and number two, because the safeguards were ignored, and number two, this shows how inept we are on local and regional and national government. It's all great in theory, but when things happen, we don't know really what to do with it, except say, well, we'll send you bottled water, which is part of the problem. So this whole Flint, Michigan thing, you know, is to me is a, is a real sore uh, on, on my backside. And, and that people should, in this day and age, should have never had to deal with that. And yet we were so lax in our response. And, you know, that headline gets swallowed by a couple other headlines and it's forgotten about unless you live in Flint. And, you know, the, the, this, um, this idea of being downstream, we're all downstream at some point. Yeah, that's the thing about whether you're talking about water or, or air. Um, there are no state boundaries, you know. There are no town boundaries, city boundaries. It, it's all connected, as we've discussed. And right. uh, therefore, and things are going up and down. And uh, therefore, um, we're, we are all downstream. That's it. So uh, relative to that, uh, it's uh, upsetting that uh, crucial protections that were in place to protect wetlands, streams, and headwaters, water sources that flow into larger bodies and ultimately help to provide drinking water for millions of Americans, uh, again, regulations have been removed and uh, we at Future Frogmen will soon be launching an email campaign to Congress that will uh, involve pre-written emails that uh, our, our followers can access and sign. Uh, if you uh, subscribe on uh, futurefrogmen.org, uh, you'll, you'll be receiving uh, informa information about that. 
and we'll put some of that up on our website and social media as well. But uh, we're asking people to support a new bill that is currently before Congress called the Clean Water for All Act, which will overturn the current administration's strangely called dirty water rule. The dirt, we want to overturn the dark, dirty water rule and, uh, and get the Clean Water for All Act uh, passed. It's, it's critical. I just want to also remind people, this is really important, I think. Um, there's always a challenge. You know, as we're speaking, there is uh, a real chance they'll be drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to some degree. This has been going on for 40, 50 years. I mean, there's nothing new here. Every administration that comes in adds protections, then they get rolled back. And they add, it's a seesaw, it's a tug of war. And I remind people, if at all possible, and, and, our, and John Denver would say this all the time, do what you can where you are with what you have. We can send emails and we can ask our people in Congress to do things. That should not be the end of it. That should be the beginning of it. That doesn't mean you sit back, go, isn't this terrible? That means you take action somewhere. And you have to find out where that action is. And it's critically important to connect with your organization and other organizations that it's not enough to send an email. It's not enough to make a phone call. It's not enough to write a letter. What you do in your daily life does make a difference. The choices you make and the ones you don't. Uh, last summer, I had the opportunity to spend an hour or so with um, uh, Dr. Jane Goodall on my show. And she was talking that the greatest challenge we have as a species are not the physical challenges we are all uh, inundated with, the ones that humans have created, but apathy, that we can't do anything about it. And that is not true. Once you get to apathetic, you, know, you can take a break. You don't have to fight the war every day. Somebody else is doing that. But apathy is when you think none of it's worth it. And I'm saying if we go back to human math and the time you have here, that your life should count for something and your voice matters for something and that you should do something about those things, whether or not your congressperson ever does, you should. Uh, I'm glad you said that. Uh, that's absolutely true. And uh, with all the different personalities we uh, deal with, uh, sometimes we do hear that only the major steps make a difference. There are important major steps like putting pressure on uh, city and state pension funds and university pension funds to divest from uh, oil and gas, fossil fuel companies. They are the rainforests of the seas and support a vast amount of aquatic life, but they're in serious decline. When we hear the words endangered species, animals like the black rhino come to mind. However, the coral reefs of the world are actually living organisms that make up an entire mini ecosystem that supports thousands of fish and plants. As the planet begins to warm, the water temperature rises, and the multicolored plants that help to sustain life on the reef die off, leading to the condition known as bleaching. Since 1998, 16% of the world's reefs have been completely destroyed. There is one reef left in the world that is near pristine, off the coast of Cuba. Scientists are digging to find out how it has survived. One factor is limited human contact, but all that may change as Cuba will be open for U.S. tourism. Will the last vibrant coral reef in the world survive or eventually be a pile of bone? I'm Bill Curtis and Earth Matters. Uh, those are great initiatives. They can have a major impact. But so can individual efforts, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, small group efforts, individual efforts. And uh, I, I, I think there might be even a little confusion about that. And some people say, well, I don't matter. Well, you do matter. And, Absolutely. And as, and as you say, your voice matters. 
John. Yep, yep. Uh, I like to think that also if you take action and you uh, walk the talk, other people are watching, whether they be mm -hmm. your, fa your children, your family members, your, your friends, your colleagues. Uh, that's a way to multiply the effect. So, John, uh, what about uh, let's talk about uh, a couple other uh, episodes. Uh, Bill talked about the uh, uh, there's at least 70 percent of the Earth is covered by water. And associated with that is also the coral reef uh, vignette. Mm. Yeah, you know, look, <laughs> you wonder why I write these things. It's like most people, if you ask somebody about a coral reef, they would say, oh, yeah, I've heard of those. But what they don't understand, and you know this because you're a, you're a scuba guy, that those coral reefs are like the, um, the vertebrae of the ocean. And they, I can see it right behind you. There's a coral reef on your little background there. And, and they become this community for the, the fish of the world and all the other little things that are down there doing what they need to do. And in all of that, they are such an integral part of the ocean uh, and life in the ocean, which then of course affects life out of the ocean, which is us. Coral reefs, you know, they're really the backbone of, all, of, the, of the ocean in so many different ways. And the health of the reefs are always an indicator of the health of the ocean. Uh, they're one of the, the kind of the canary in the ocean instead of the canary in the cage in, in the, you know, when it comes to mining and stuff like that. They are indicators and a warning signal of how we're doing. And with the decimation of so much of the coral reefs of the world, uh, in direct relationship to water quality and, and, and all the overfishing and stuff that goes on, it's just another indicator that humans have to get their act together. And there's things we need to do differently in order to sustain that. Now, there's also good news. There are some reefs that are coming back and there are uh, some innovative ways that humans are creating artificial reefs that can then become natural reefs. And so, you know, it's, it's once again, we, we get to this precipice, there's that word again, precipice of change and something comes up, someone has an idea to offset all the stuff that's not been happening uh, by because of human uh, behavior. And so, you know, that's some of these I wrote a few years ago and there's been improvements since then, but that doesn't mean we stop. That just means we keep up the awareness and the efforts. Seventy percent of the earth is covered in water, and the greatest biodiversity of life is found beneath the surface. But as with much of the planet, it's under siege. As the human population grows, man has turned to the oceans for harvesting fish that at one time seemed to be an endless supply. Fish are being impacted by the changing water conditions brought on by carbon emissions that are altering the chemistry of seawater, making it more acidic. Rutgers marine biologist Dr. Malin Pinsky puts it this way. If you had an aquarium full of fish, cranked up the heater and dumped acid in the water, you would have some serious problems. Basically, that is what we are doing to the oceans. Everything on Earth is connected at some level. So when carbon emissions are spewed forth, it just doesn't mean warmer summers and more difficult winters for humans. It also means that the denizens of the deep are part of the chain reaction in a negative way. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. Absolutely. The coral reefs are still under in yeah. danger and under threat. Uh, there are some uh, great organizations. We've recently been contacted by an organization that wants to uh, explore ways to work with future frogmen on coral reefs. So uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to having that conversation with them. But, uh, yeah, and I loved how you guys... Uh, uh, described the coral reefs as rainforests of the sea. Yeah. That's uh, 
it, it is, you know, so much of what goes on under the water, as you know, because you spent time with Captain Cousteau and the great guys on, on, on board ship and all the expeditions and things, is that one of the most important things I think that that show did and what Captain Cousteau did was take us in a land and in a, in a, in a world, really, that most of us will never enter. And we can't, if we can't understand it, we can't protect it. And so the ongoing efforts of what you're doing and other people are doing to keep us our noses underwater as best you can at least has us thinking a little bit of the conversation a little bit that maybe this is something I should pay attention to. Yeah, I would dare say that many, if not most people, don't realize that coral is actually alive. It's a living but, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just a place where the fish hang out and, and uh, their habitat, but the coral is actually alive. And that's when, why it's uh, uh, when it dies and the yeah. reef dies, that, that affects all of the, uh, the ecosystem. Well, this goes back to the whole concept that everything is connected. John Muir said, when in the wilderness, which would include wa- above and beyond the water and, and below it and underneath everything and above everything, when you tug on one thing in the wilderness, you find eventually it's connected to something else. All connected. Absolutely. Now, another vignette, which I uh, found a, a very pow- to be a very powerful message, when you're talking about marine debris and you talk about underwater fences. Imagine fences all over America that endanger animals like elk, bear, deer, or hundreds of smaller animals if they got stuck in the fences and died. That scenario plays out in the ocean every single day. Over the past 50 years, hundreds of lost and left-behind fishing nets have snagged thousands of sharks, turtles, whales, dolphins, and seals as they swim around the world's oceans. Just last year, a research vessel, the SETI, recovered 57 tons of fishing nets and discarded plastic containers off the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. The World Animal Protection Group estimates there are 640,000 tons of gill nets and trawler nets that have become floating death traps for marine life. The good news? Teams of volunteers have removed miles of the ghost nets that have saved an estimated three million fish and seabirds in the past three years. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. Listen, fishing is a huge industry. It always has been, probably always will be until we can figure out ways to sustainably get this thing back on on even kilter. But so much of the netting is left behind and cut loose and adrift. And it turns into basically uh, a fence. And there are fences all over the, the oceans of the world that are snagging fish and, and you know, unintended, I'm sure, but still it's the human mindset of just cutting it and throwing it away and out of sight, out of mind. And it's devastating fish populations around the world. So I know there have been bills introduced and there is some consciousness about, you know, not doing that anymore, but that doesn't matter. I've read articles where there are nets that are 75 or hundred years old still floating around nylon. Nylon just doesn't disintegrate in the water. It just blanches out. So you've got these nets floating around for almost a century, Richard, that are killing fish for a hundred years. We can do better than that. We should be doing better than that. Yeah. Killing fish, turtles, uh, sharks, whales. Uh, Okay. So, uh, we could go on and on, but we, we cannot stop our environmental conversation without coming back to plastic. We yes. talked about that earlier on, and, and your, uh, your episode on plastic uh, started by talking about uh, uh, disposal wasn't really thought about. No. 
One of the greatest inventions has been plastic, but more and more it's been showing up where it was never intended to be. From toothbrushes to toilet seats, plastic products have changed the way we live. However, like most ideas humans come up with, disposal of products after their use wasn't really thought out. Then post-World War II, when we became a throwaway society, a massive amount of plastic has shown up where it was never intended to be. In the oceans of the world, where fish and seabirds mistake the bits of plastic for food, disrupting the natural order. It's estimated that there are 300,000 tons of plastic in the ocean that eventually leaches toxins into the water supply. Americans discard 33.6 million tons of plastic each year, but only 6.5 million tons are recycled. If you are not sure that reducing, reusing, and recycling has any effect, guess again. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth matters. Plastic was the miracle of the 40s and 50s. After World War II, hey, why do the dishes? Just have these plastic things and throw them away. And pretty soon, somebody started to figure out that plastic sticks around a very, very long time. And plastic has only improved over time, you know, from those rudimentary elements back in, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, they have gotten much better to some degree uh, at uh, hopefully making them not last as long but the bottom line is especially when it comes to plastic bottles it's an obscenity so you get the american public or the world now it's not just here of course in america to start drinking more water and provide it in a plastic bottle with zero thought of where to put them what are we going to do with them doesn't matter throw them in a landfill of course just like the runoff from agriculture a lot of what happens is this stuff ends up in the oceans and sometimes it's in third world countries and sometimes it's in new york harbor there is no it's an even playing field and so whether this is stuff that's buried in the ground, that's going to start leaching out any chemicals it was created with and eventually ends up in the water supply, or it's the matter of throwing bottles out and without any thought that get washed into a harbor or an ocean, uh, it's, just, it's just the indicator of how humans are, not all of us, but enough of us, that it's, it's just a throwaway society. The mentality is it doesn't matter. Now, there have been times, obviously, where I was thrilled to see uh, here in the States that in the early years of recycling, uh, they were building decks and benches and, and all kind of things out of recycled materials. And we're getting better at it, but we have a long way to go to catch up. Billions of bottles are thrown out. And I, I'm like, look, here's, we talked earlier about, you know, writing letters, getting with the Congress people, do, making your vote count. Here's one thing you can do. If you absolutely don't trust your water, if you live in Flint maybe, or other places, and you don't trust your water, A, here's exactly what you can do to help the problem. Stop buying bottled water. They're just labeled from soda pop manufacturers for the most part. Get a, a water that, a bottle you can reuse and a filter. Real simple. So instead of throwing out thousands of bottles of water every year, get a filter. I'm not going to plug any particular one and, and run your tap water through it and pour it in a glass and drink it. Now listen, you and I are not that far apart in age. We both grew up at a time before water filters and we survived drinking regular water. What a concept. So this is a consciousness change. And if you absolutely have to use plastic when it comes to a bottle, whether it's a soda pop or water, find some recycling place to dispose of them. Don't just put it in the garbage. Simple, real simple people really bothers me, as you can tell. Yeah, I, I know it does. We've spoken about that. Yeah, and, uh... it's, it's the bane of my existence. I, sit to my, I go into the supermarket and there are rows and rows of this bottle of water stacked up and people grab at it. And I, I'll say to them, I try not to do it as much anymore because people make the choice they want. And I say, so where are you going to put that bottle when you're done? In the garbage. 
we don't put it in the garbage. It's a mindset. Put it in recycling. Yeah, and, and in that episode, you talk about recycling. You talk about reducing, yeah. reusing, and recycling. And uh, probably since that aired, uh, there's a, a, a term that's being used more and more now, is, which is refuse. Yes. I think that's what you're touching upon, really. Yeah, just stop it. Just so stop it. Yeah. You find know, and, a- and the only place I would call it is Hershey's, who has, the, has a bottled water uh, brand. And Hershey gets their waters from different sources underground. They're not in the Alps anywhere, some snow melt that it's magically better for you. It's just bottled water from a source here in the States, and they repackage it, repurpose it. And the water only costs them about a penny. But what you're paying for is it water. You're paying for the plastic bottle, two bucks. Mm-hmm. Makes no sense. So they're paying minimal water rights, making billions of dollars off the fact that people believe they need to drink water out of a bottle as opposed to the sink. Amazing. Biggest thing perpetrated on the American public, in my opinion, ever. You need water. It's in a bottle. Buy it from us. You'll feel better. What a pile of crap. And I, I remember, up, and I cleaned up my language for you, just so you know. <laughs> I remember when we talked about this, uh, you also mentioned, uh, uh, as a child, drinking water out of a hose. Oh, and, yeah, living on the edge. I still then, do. Yeah, and this summer, as, as in, in the warm weather, doing yard work or whatever, uh, as a kid, I drank out of the hose, and yeah. uh, I, I, I grabbed the hose this summer a few times, and I, I think of John St. Augustine when I'm oh, drinking. So, <laughs> I'll, I, you know, I'll thank you. Of all the things I've accomplished, if that's what you did, <laughs> I'm good. It's, I mean, that's one of the, most, the, the, the simplest, greatest pleasures in Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Drinking cold water out of a, yeah, we're on a well here, so it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's very good. But, uh, well, John, uh, thanks for recapping some of those vignettes. Uh, and uh, I hope people enjoy hearing those as we've, we've presented those uh, within this podcast. Now, as we go to a uh, kind of a final chapter of our discussion, and it's been a long one, but it's really been pleasurable. And Thank uh, you. Same I, here. Really, yeah. this is weird to have the tables turned for me. <laughs> It's intimidating for me, but uh, oh. <laughs> not really. I'm, I'm getting a little you're experience. Doing good. Yeah, you're not yeah. As, your face isn't as flushed as it was when we started. I have about maybe 7,000 more episodes to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd like to close with, uh, with uh, ask you about two things. First of all, when you and Bill Curtis spoke at Northeastern Illinois University, uh, you delivered some messages there. And uh, I, I believe you said the ripple effect of climate change on water, land, and species. And I'm not sure if this was at that event or elsewhere, but you also said, outside of my kids, the environment is the topic that is most important to me because it's something we, that we all have in common. Yeah. So can you uh, give us a little bit of a, and then we're going to go to John Denver after sure. this. So. Bill and I decided to take the Earth Matters show on the road, and uh, we tag team it. Uh, it was, uh, we've had some great ones. You know, the COVID has stopped that, uh, but we were out on the road a few times uh, on stage together, and we are very different personalities, as you can tell. So Bill was very scientific and very journalistic and very research-based, and so uh, he would kind of handle that end of it, and I started out the shows 
doing my best Teddy Roosevelt pounding on the podium saying, folks, we got to get our you-know-what together. And I would show the Earth Matters videos based on everything we were talking about. And to watch these, you know, again, it was kind of a thrill for both of us. I'd always look over at Bill. He'd look at me and we'd wink at each other. To think that these started out as a thought in passing with some scripts. And now we're sitting in front of a thousand people. And these Earth Matters videos are on a 12-foot screen with his voice and my images. It's just, it was incredible. And yet that's what exactly was needed. I had people come up afterwards at these events go, I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no idea we take 100 million sharks out of the water every year for you know soup. I had no idea that the rivers were so bad. You know, I had no idea. That's where it starts. And so I would start out the show with that and pound on the podium and show these videos and get people all worked up. And then Bill would come in and say, go plant really deep-rooted prairie grass to make things better. And it was a great tag team. And that event, you're absolutely right. And I still stand by that. Outside of my kids, I couldn't give my life to anything more important than what I'm doing now. The shows I do, and I'm getting about ready to do with this international thing, is about improving the human condition. You can improve the human condition, but we all are still inside that little globe, and we have to be aware of that. And so those Earth Matters events uh, gave me great hope, because when you're doing a syndicated radio show or even a podcast, you're removed from the audience. We were in front of a thousand people and you had immediate feedback as to here's what I will do because I, I learned something tonight. And that is a direct line to John Denver and my experience speaking at Windstar and what Windstar Foundation was all about was sustainability and doing what you can right where you are. You don't have to do everything, but you can do something. And that's, those, I could stand at the Earth Matters event and I could listen and we would often open it. I would sometimes open the event with John's music because it was John and I that actually put Bill and I together in 1989. Fantastic. Well, and as a follow on outside of my kids, the environment is the topic that is most important to me because it's something we all have in common. A quote from you, John, as I said before, uh, I'll add that one reason we should be concerned about the environment is for our kids, as I'm sure you You've, yeah, and, and my grandkids who aren't even here yet. And, we, and the Native American people always look seven generations ahead. Uh, my generation looks till about one o'clock. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, 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 they, or they don't care, Yeah. period. And know? listen, I, I've learned, too, that the few do the work for the many. Not everybody's going to get it. They never have yeah. gotten it. They won't get it. That doesn't mean I should be any less than. I still go around picking up after people that I'm related to going, I don't know how you can't get this. But when you see a little change, like, well, they stopped doing this and they're doing this, that's good. That's improvement. And so the few do the work for the many. And if you're not willing to do the work, then somebody behind you will pick it up and do it, hopefully. So uh, those are uh, outstanding kind of Preliminary closing remarks, John. But now I want to get to our, our good buddy, uh, John Denver. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I told you uh, th before we started recording that uh, this morning I reread chapter from your book, Living an Uncommon Life. Chapter two, Your Voice Matters, talks about how you met John. And uh, I'd like you to share that story if you could. Sure. And, uh, also, uh, you say your voice matters, and later in the chapter you say finding your own voice. If you could also weave that sure. in there, that, that would be great, John. I grew up, like millions of people, listening to John's music in the 70s, and 
uh, his uh, voice and message in many ways, especially growing up with so much concrete and steel here in the city, was an option or an opportunity for me to think there might be something different for me in the world. It wasn't always about, uh, you know, my, my house was so close to the Kennedy Expressway, I'd go to sleep at night listening to the traffic. So to think that I could be, or there was a place where there was the sound of the wind or an eagle or a whale, man, that had moment for me. So much so my mom, and I think I wrote about in that chapter, if not other books I have, my mom went out, I, I was at school one day and I came home and she had changed my bedroom into a mountain cabin. She put a huge mur mural of the mountains on my wall and she had stained the beds and I was like, this was so great. And his voice seeped into my very young soul around 1974 with a song called Sweet Surrender, where the message was, you know, there's a spirit that guides me and a light that shines for me and that my life was worth living, even though I couldn't see the end. And it's, it started working on me. And so years later, as I mentioned with Bill Curtis, I had met John uh, in passing when I was in Colorado in the early 80s at a, at a conference, and I was just glad to meet him, and I was thrilled to see him, and that was the end of it. And in 1989, John was doing a, a one-man show called Higher Ground around the world. He did about six or eight of these. And he was coming to Chicago. And by that time, I was just starting to work my way into some media stuff and connecting with people. And the Windstar Foundation that John and Tom Crum founded in 1976 in Snowmass, Colorado, was doing a yearly symposium. And I knew about them but had not attended yet. So in 1989, I was part of a group that was bringing John to Chicago. I was doing the, the PR for it. And I thought to myself, boy, I wonder if that guy on TV, Bill Curtis, who was just a newsman at the time, I uh, wonder if he'd like to go to this. Maybe he'd cover it. Maybe we'd get some, something out of it. So as I was back then, I'm not as forward as I used to be. I called CBS and I asked for Bill Curtis and I got on his phone and left him a voicemail. I told him who I was and that John Denver was coming to Chicago at the Chicago Theater. And if he'd like to be there, I'd have a couple tickets for him and maybe he'd cover it. And I got there that night and the place holds, I don't know, five, 6,000 people, whatever it was. And it was almost full. And, and uh, I was in the third row center and I was walking to my seats and who's coming the other way with Bill Curtis. And we sat next to each other. And that's how we first met in 1989. And there was an afterwards meet and greet and John was there. So John and I and Bill talked and there was a synergy there and something clicked. I can't quite put it together, but I'm sitting here with, with this guy whose music I listened to on the radio when I was a kid going, what is going on? Fast forward a few years, uh, 1992, I had gone back to college. I was out of the service, uh, starting a family and all that kind of stuff. And I was working overnights at a, uh, a hotel in security. And I was getting ready to go to work. I was watching The Tonight Show. Jay Leno was the host. And I'm sitting on the couch. And um, Jay Leno says, you all know my next guest. He's a singer, songwriter, internationally known, blah, blah, blah. He'll be at the Wang Center in Boston in December. Please welcome John Denver. I didn't hear anything except go to Den go to Boston and see John. Made no sense. Long and short of it is I bought a ticket the next day on a plane when they sled Continental Airlines. I flew to Boston unannounced. Again, I knew him a little bit. I found a hotel to stay in. I opened the phone book. I called four hotels. Chris O'Connor, John's road manager, answered on the third or fourth call. He says, oh, yeah, I remember you. What are you doing in Boston? I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to see John. I'm not sure why. He goes, you have a ticket to the show? No. Nope. Come see me. I'll get you a ticket, and you can have 15 minutes ahead of the show to talk. Fantastic. The, the stars have lined up. Well, a huge storm hits Boston. I make my way to the Boston, the Wang Center in Boston, right by the Boston Commons, the theater. And I get there, 
and there's no van. John's not there. The guys aren't there. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, talking to the security guy who had my name. And finally, John walks in 25, half minute, half hour late, somewhere in there. And he looks at me. And he says, what are you doing here? And I said, mm. and then Chris comes in and says, you know, we lost our time to meet because of the storm. And I thought, I didn't fly all the way here for nothing. So he takes me backstage, puts me downstairs. I think this is all in that chapter. Puts me downstairs where all the guitars are tuning up and gives me a cheeseburger. He says, this is the best I can do. And uh, I ate the cheeseburger. I'm listening to them guys warm up above me on the stage. And I think, again, I'm being very forward back in my youth. I walked upstairs onto the stage while they're warming up. And Chris comes over and goes, you can't be on the stage, John. And I said, well... Where are you at tomorrow night? I'll meet you guys there. And finally, he looks at me and goes, okay, 10 minutes after the concert. Concert's great. John's incredible. I go downstairs. I'm the last guy. We're standing there underneath the Wang Center stage under a bare bulb. And he says, what are you doing here? And I thought there'd be some huge cosmic connection. And he says, why are you here? And I said, mm, I thought you'd know. He goes, I, I have no idea. Then he says, did you bring me anything? And I have some letters in my jacket pocket from kids that had written to me after I'd given a talk at their school about some environmental things months earlier. They just happened to be in my pocket. I said, oh, yeah, I brought you these letters like I knew what I was doing. And I gave him these letters and he he's reading them and he gets that big grin on his face. You know, it's like ear to ear. And he says, you know, back at Windstar, we should have a program that deals with kids. And, and I'm going to take can I take these back with me? Like I knew, oh sure, yeah, that was why the whole reason I was there becomes the, the, that pivotal moment. He puts his hand on my shoulder, he looks at me in the eye and he says, John, do you know that your voice matters? And I said, no, I, I don't know that. And it was a pivotal moment in my life. It was coming from someone I knew who could see something in me that I couldn't. And he said, I know the coming years will prove me right. And there was this moment frozen in time, just the two Johns under a bare bulb in the basement of the Wang Center. And then he says, I got to go to this PR thing. And could you put the letters in my bag and I'll take it back? I said, great. So I, I felt like mission accomplished, right? So I did that. I fly back to Chicago. Six, eight weeks later, I get a phone call from his office in, in Aspen from the Windstar people saying, John brought your letters to a meeting and this is great. And thanks so much and blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh, this is it. I did the right thing. This was all purposeful. That was in, I don't know, 92. A year later, um, I'm teaching at school, and I see a flyer in my inbox that says the next year in 1994, the Windstar Choices for the Future will be called the Human Family. And by the time I left school and got home to my house, the words to the Human Family, a poem or song, wrote themselves straight out. I sat in the yard. I could see to this day writing these words. And I showed up. Uh, kept thinking this is there's something to this I don't know what it is and you talk about following the connect the dots uh, all of the summer of 93 into 94 I keep thinking I think I'm supposed to be speaking at Windstar I had not written a book I had not ever been on the radio I had never done a TED talk there was no such thing as TED talks and it kept feeling like this pressure and so finally I let it go and one morning I was cleaning the cat box which is a very zen like you know, motion to do. I was cleaning the cat box and the phone rings upstairs and it's John's office. And he's on the phone saying, can you come speak at Windstar? Dr. May Jemison canceled. 
our first female black astronaut in history couldn't make it and I, I think he'd be great. What are you talking about? So long and short of it is uh, in August, I believe 27th, 28th, somewhere in there of 94 on a Saturday morning in front of 5,000 people at the Aspen Music Tent, I walked out on stage, pushed out on stage by John, your turn to go talk. And I had three um, little words on a matchbook that I'd got from the hotel the night before. It was my whole talk for a half hour. And it was about the ripple effect and how everything's connected and how there are things we are here to do. And when I finished with the human family poem that I wrote a year later or a year earlier, long before I was invited to a standing ovation, I knew that my life was never gonna be the same again. And it all came out of that one question, do you know your voice matters? And Richard, to this day, every day, everything I write, every podcast I've done, every radio show I've done, every interview I do, everything is based off that one moment of our friend reminding me that my voice matters and I didn't know it until he told me and asked me. Yeah. It's fantastic. That is fantastic. And uh, as I told you uh, before we started today, uh, when I reread this chapter, it gave me chills and uh, probably a, a tear or two as well. Oh, boy. So uh, I, listen, I, I, I Listen, I don't get to, I have on my wall, which you can't see right over here, is a poster that John gave me signed from that day in Windstar. And it was gone for 20 years. I had gifted it to somebody, and it came back just a couple months ago. Every morning I walk in my office. I'm having breakfast with Teddy Roosevelt. And then John's over here, and I am stuck in between them two, and Captain Cousteau is running down the middle <laughs> saying, do something with yourself, you know? Yeah. And while we all don't can't be on the radio, write books, and I get that. But there's something you can do, and as John would say, do what you can where you are with what you have. You may not be able to do everything, but you can do something, and you should. Yeah, and uh, everyone's voice does matter. It does, but it depends on how you use it, right? It depends on how you use it. Everybody's voice does matter and should be heard, but don't ever think because you don't have a microphone or you haven't written a book or you're not on the stage that it doesn't matter. We're broadcasting all the time, all the time, all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's what I was driving at. Uh, no matter what you do in your life, uh, your, your voice matters, and hopefully you can use your voice in a, in a positive, constructive manner because we, we certainly need that now and, okay. and forever. I got to ask you a question because you've been asking all the questions, mister. Okay. <laughs> the song Calypso, the last podcast we did together, that, that song was is so riveting to me. He used to finish his concerts with it and, and, and it, the soaring tenor voice of his, it's just amazing. There's a line in that song that when I hear it, I think he must have been talking to you on the bridge, on watch, at night, on the black ocean. And you're one of the few people, might be the only person that heard all of this, besides Captain Gusto and the crew, before we all heard it. And that one line, to work in the service of life and the living. When I hear that song, now you think of me when you drink water out of a hose. When I hear that line, I, I think of Richard. What is it like for you to hear that? Oh, I, I uh, every time I hear it, 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 it just, the entire song it just gives me chills. And just you mentioning those lyrics gives me a chill. Yeah. Uh, and and as as we shared, uh, as I shared on, as your guest on uh, 2.0 on Podbean, um, yeah, I did have the, the the pleasure of John visiting me on the bridge on watch uh, in the middle of the night, and he would ask me questions and. 
what was it what is it really like and uh i like to think uh, maybe i gave him a little bit of uh, uh, that's what i'm saying have you got royalties yeah. out of this at all you should have got a cut <laughs> yeah no <laughs> um but uh yeah and and uh i i guess in closing uh it's it's wonderful that uh, we have such a inspiring man in common we we both uh think extremely highly of him and miss him and yep. uh, sh surely wish his life had not been cut short. Yep. But, uh, and you know, we, and I, and I believe this, I think when somebody that you, of, of, of importance to you passes or leaves that there, you pick up a little bit of their work to do that was unfinished and you do it in your way. I mean, what you're doing with future frogmen is mind blowing to me. Again, I keep thinking <laughs> if Captain Cousteau, which he may, could see you now and I just I think it's just unbelievable and it all started because you said yes to drive a truck I mean that's how it is and, and it all started with me because I said yeah my voice might matter which on and I look at those things and say we're continuing on and finishing up the things that they couldn't in our own way and maybe somebody listening to this picks up a piece of what Richard's doing or what picks what John's doing I've had people start radio shows because they were my guests and I said yeah your voice matters too it's not just me and they've had careers so you do what you can where you are with what you have and you create a ripple effect and it goes out and comes back and the thing that i've learned most about the ripple effect in the water it's not just at the surface it's at every level down john i think that's a great spot to end today's conversation uh it, it's been such a pleasure having you thank you oh, so my much pleasure. my pleasure honor to do it thank you and thank you audience we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. Please follow us on social media at Future Frogmen and on our website, futurefrogmen.org. And remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thank you.